Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Well, hello and welcome to episode 41. And I'm pretty excited to share with you this guest. It's Dr. Nick Morgan, and he was high on my list for people I wanted to have on the show back when I was pondering this way back when. And so we had a dream come true, I think, in my little weird dreams, I guess, of episode 15 when David Allen was on the show. And this is Dr. Nick Morgan, who's got so much good stuff. You're not going to want to miss his book, Give Your Speech, Change the World, uh, really did change the way I think about speaking and has has stuck. So you're going to learn some great stuff, including one, how to hook audience attention and presentations. Two, what vocal cues can unconsciously undermine how your peers perceive you. And three, keys to cooperating with the adrenaline rush that speaking produces. So if you want to check out the show notes, the transcript, the links to stuff we t- mention here, that's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep41. Here's a bit about Nick. Dr. Nick Morgan is one of America's top communication theorists and coaches. He has spoken, led conferences, and moderated panels at venues around the world. Nick is a former fellow at the Center for Public Leadership at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. He founded Public Words, Inc., a consulting firm specializing in communications in 1997. Nick has been commissioned by Fortune 50 companies to write for many CEOs and presidents. He has coached people to give congressional testimony, to appear on the Today Show, and to deliver an unforgettable TED Talk. He has worked widely with political and educational leaders. Nick helps people find clarity in their thinking and ideas, developing thought leaders, and coaches them to deliver their ideas with panache. Big thanks to Dr. Nick Morgan for bringing the goods, and big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. It's a trying time that challenges all of our basic assumptions. However, one thing that brings us all together is our common humanity. Now more than ever, teams must come together and work together to solve big challenges. And Trello is here to help. Trello, part of Atlassian's collaborative suite, is an app with an easy-to-understand visual format plus tons of features that make working with your team functional and just plain fun. Teams of all shapes and sizes and companies like Google, Fender, and even Costco all use Trello to collaborate and get work done. With Trello, you can work with your team wherever you are whether it's at home or in an office. No matter what device you're using, computer, tablet, or phone, Trello syncs across all of them, so you can stay up to date on all the things your team cares about. Keep your workflow going from wherever you are with Trello. Try Trello for free and learn more at Trello.com. That's T-R-E-L-L-O dot com. Trello.com. Here's Nick Morgan. Nick, thank you so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. It's a pleasure, Pete. Thanks for having me on your show. Oh, yes. Well, I'm so pumped up. I've been a big fan for a long time. And maybe a fun way to to set the stage here might be, could you share a story of, in some of your speech communication work, where you had a client and and you saw like an extraordinary transformation in terms of kind of before and after and, and what made the difference? Yeah, sure. Uh, I worked uh, only recently uh, with a woman who's who was speaking, a consultant who was speaking for the first time to about four thousand people. So she she had spoken before to 
to small audiences uh, and, and was used to working with intimate groups um, in workshops and, and sort of on an all-day basis. But this was a keynote to 4,000 people, a very different kind of experience. You have to come out strong and, and you only get an hour and you've got to reach all 4,000 people. So she was uh, very nervous about it. And her affect was very minimal. Um, mm. She was she was successful as a consultant, really, because she projected calm, um, <laughs> and uh-huh. and and she made her clients feel like that whatever problems they were facing, they could surmount them because she she projected that sense of uh, of command and calm and being at ease, and and that's a great thing to do in a consulting discussion, but in front of four thousand people. Good as calm is, it's not. It's just not great. Uh, right, you, you. you need you, you need to entertain those people, and and that's one of the interesting things about communications. We say always nowadays that you need to have a conversation with your audience, whether it's twenty people or two thousand people. But but the fact remains that it's a slightly different kind of conversation mm-hmm. if it's twenty people or if it's many thousands of people. And so I worked with her to figure out how do we take that air of calm that she projected and turn it into something that was higher energy without fundamentally altering her nature. You don't want to get somebody pretending to be someone right. they're not. Uh, she, she was no Mick Jagger. She wasn't going to be. <laughs> there was no point in having her come out in a jumpsuit and, and <laughs> shout, I can't get no satisfaction. <laughs> it just wasn't going to work. Uh, so, uh, so we had to find another way to do it. And what we ended up working on was some body language uh, there are ways that you can signal energy very subtly with body language that don't fundamentally change your um, your own human nature, uh, but allow you to signal to the audience that that you're there with a good deal of intensity and passion. And so we had her using her hands in ways that were very strong and powerful. And she was able to take that kind of coaching. For some people, it's very hard for them to think about their their bodies as they're speaking in public. Mm -hmm. Uh, But she was one who could, and that turned out to be easier for her than trying to change her nature and trying to turn her into somebody who was, who was really peppy. So it was a great, uh, great success. Well, it is a great story. Well, now you got me curious. So what are some of the key things you could do with your hands that convey that extra energy? Well, one of the things you can do, and as I mentioned uh, Mick Jagger deliberately, if you've ever seen him uh, do a show, he, keeps his hands over his head, high over his head, almost the entire show. And he's always pumping his fists and waving at the crowd. And the higher we raise our hands, the more energy we signal to the audience we're putting out. Now, hmm. Mick Jagger, we're talking pop music, and, and so hands way over the head, that would be appropriate, right? Because it's uh, high energy, fast tempo. Uh, the Rolling Stones are going at it the entire time. Now, she, uh, my speaker couldn't come out with her hands over her head and uh, she didn't have a musical accompaniment. So mm-hmm. we had to temper that. She had to keep her hands uh, more at, at shoulder height. But the difference between that and the way people normally place their hands when they're speaking signals a very different energy level. And it worked beautifully. Let me say halfway through, she got spontaneous applause for one of the comments that she made. And that's when she knew that she had that audience in the palm, palm of her hand or the palm of her raised hands. <laughs> oh, that is perfect. Thank you. Well, now I'd love to hear a little bit. So the top transformative takeaway I got from from your book, Give Your Speech, Change the World, was that a speech is a journey from why 
to how, because I often <laughs> skipped the why and went right to the how, because, well, I, I'm into the how. You know, the podcast is called How to Be Awesome at Your Job. I, I like that kind of thing. And, and so it has really reshaped the way I think about speaking. Could you elaborate for our listeners? What is that principle about and, and how does that come to life? Absolutely. The thing about audience is they don't care about you as much as you care about them mm-hmm. <laughs> as a speaker. You're very, of course, very interested in succeeding in front of that audience. But from their point of view, they're asking initially, why am I here? Why should I care? Why does this matter? And not in a hostile way, but because they want it to be successful. They, they want to know, why am I here? What are we going to get out of this hour that we're going to spend together or this or, or whatever the length of the, of the session is? And so, if you answer that why question for them early on, then they're, they're happy bunnies. They settled in their chairs in an attentive way, and then you can move on once you've taken them through the why and you've presented the issue that you're talking about. Then you can take them into the how. And I can give you a quick example. If you walked out in front of an audience and said right away, straight, straight from the top, if you said something like, there is enough food produced in the world to feed every man, woman, and children on the planet every single day. And yet, every single day, thousands of children die in Africa from malnutrition. What's wrong with that? Now, right away, that audience would know why they were there. They were there to discuss the issue of, of malnutrition and, and, uh, and food distribution, and they would be uh, oriented, and so they would to listen to the right kinds of things. And so they would immediately be ready to begin to make that transition from the why to the how. And so you don't always need to do it that abruptly or with that direct a statement, but something like that needs to happen early on in the talk in order to let your audience know why they're there. Oh, so now I love that example. And sure enough, you, you've grabbed my attention right from the get-go. Could you maybe give us the, the counter example of what would be a, a weaker start to that speech that started with a how? Yeah. Going back to my consultant example, uh, consultants often speaking to audiences, they, they want to jump right into their expertise. Mm-hmm. And, and so they tend to do something in the form of a, an executive summary. And that executive summary says something like, here's what's wrong with your company and, and for the, for the fee of a hundred million dollars, we'll fix it. <laughs> and what the executives who are listening to that, while they appreciate no doubt having their time saved with the executive summary, what they hear is, you're going to have to write me a giant check and I don't know why. <laughs> and so they immediately say no. Uh, so that's, uh, that's an example of how not to do it, jumping right into your, uh, your expertise or your solution or, or your uh, way of, of proceeding. Now, the other kinds of mistakes that speakers make, uh, there are three of them really that, that I see over and over and over again. And the first one is to say, uh, let me begin by telling you a little bit about myself. Uh-huh. And so they introduce themselves or their company or their products. And again, the audience doesn't care about that. They want to know why they're there. They don't care as much about you as you do about them. So that's the first thing. The second thing, and this may surprise some people, is is uh, speakers often start with an agenda. Let me tell you what I'm going to tell you. Mm-hmm. And I think agendas used to work a couple of decades ago, but now what you see, and I've observed this behavior over and over again in conferences, as soon as a speaker says, let me tell you about the agenda, what I'm going to say without actually saying it, the audience goes to their cell phones kind of surreptitiously and they, because they're thinking to themselves, oh, great, I can get one more email done or one more text message sent before he actually starts talking about what he's going to talk about. And they see that as a, as a time waster. Okay. And so while I 
absolutely believe that agenda is important if you have a, a group for a whole day, if you're leading a workshop or something like that. They, they deserve to know what's in store for them for an entire day. Mm-hmm. But if we're talking an hour keynote, we can live through that without knowing what the uh, specific roadmap is. We don't need to know every 15 minutes uh, what you're going to say. So just jump right in. And then the, the third mistake that speakers make all the time is they do what I call throat clearing. They'll say something like, uh, well, it's great to be here. Anybody here from Dubuque? And, uh, oh, was, how about that rainstorm last night? Well, boy, it woke me up in the middle of the night, so I'm a little short on sleep today. And they're just sort of chattering away without really beginning again or telling the audience why they're there. And when I uh, charge speakers with that and I say, cut that kind of thing out, they say, oh, no, I'm, I'm establishing a rapport with the audience. But in fact, if you dig a little bit into that, you see they're not establishing a rapport with the audience. They're just trying to make themselves comfortable. Mm-hmm. And public speaking isn't about being instantly comfortable. That's not your job. Your job is to is to jump right in and tell that audience something that they don't know and that they're interested in finding more about. Oh, I like that tough love there. So so we start with a, a strong why and, and none of the other d- distractions, whether it be uh, an agenda or, or throat clearing type stuff. And so the why might sound like this is the benefit or the transformation you're going to get when, when we're all done here. Uh, what are some other kind of key whys that are, are great starting points? Well, you might tell the audience a story. I, mean, I often give speeches on body language, and I'll start with a story of uh, the time I was uh, I suffered a traumatic brain injury and died, and that really gets the audience's oh, yeah. attention. And and they say, "Oh, how did you die? And well, uh, how are you? How are you still here?" <laughs> <laughs> and I say, "Well, I only died. I tell the story. I only died for 15 minutes. But what happened as a result of that was that for a, a period of about a year, I could no longer automatically read body language in the way that audience most people can. Oh, wow! In that." If you walk into a room and a loved one or a friend or a colleague is in the room and that person is furious or happy or very excited about something, you, you can pick up that vibe pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. You don't have to think about it consciously. You, you, you know the person and you just know what they're, what they're indicating with their emotions. And I'd lost that ability. Something about the brain injury had caused me to lose that. And so I had to train myself consciously to understand body language to get it back. And so when I tell that story, people are then engaged and 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 I'll say that's why I'm interested in body language and that's why I'm here today talking to you about it and that's enough to get people going to let them know why they're there without sort of giving away the whole game without telling them all the things that I'm going to tell them mm. so that that's a a story like that can engage people make them interested and yet uh not give the whole game away Oh, that's fun. And, and well, speaking of body language, I'd like to transition now a bit to talking about your latest book, Power Cues. And so you lay out seven of those cues that I'm sure we don't have time to to cover much depth on those. But could you give us a, an overview of, of what are some of the the big power cues to watch out for? And, and maybe in particular, do some demo on vocal intonation. Yeah, absolutely. So the the first several power cues are all about figuring out your own body language history and how that affects the way you walk into a room or the way you stand or the way you present yourself to other people when you meet them for the first time. What happens to us once we get past about age, um, let's say, 18, is we start to carry our history around uh, and the history of our great moments and our not-so-great moments. And and if we're confident, we, we tend to bake that into our muscles and so we walk naturally in a in a confident way and if we lack confidence or if we're shy or if we 
if we've suffered uh, a lot of disappointment along the way, we'll tend to carry that in our bodies too. And, and so the, the, the first set of power cues is all about finding out what's your body language history? What are you presenting to the world? And then what can you do about that? Is that the persona that you want the world to see mm. in these important moments, like when you're giving a speech or or going for a job interview or, or asking for a raise or all the, the, the kinds of key moments in our professional lives when we want to show up at our best? Are you showing up at your best? And, and so the, the book Power Cues goes into how how you can modify your body language and think about it in a way that uh, allows you to show up at your best. Mm-hmm. So body language, got it. Yeah, those are the first several. And then the, the fourth power cue, you mentioned the voice. The fourth power cue is all about the voice. And and there's some extraordinary research that suggests that the voice is much more powerful, much more important than we've realized uh, in determining leadership. It turns out we respond to aspects of the voice that we're not consciously aware of. There are undertones in every voice that allows us to tell one voice from another. And so when you have somebody who has a very strong voice, and I always use the example of former President Ronald Reagan, because everybody knows he had a great sort of communicating voice, Mm -hmm. uh, very, very rich and resonant. And so he sounded like a president. And so that's just a good example to give you a sense of what I mean. When you hear a voice like that, then that voice inspires uh, leadership and followership in people. It takes charge of the room. And the, the alternative is a voice that's, that's pinched, that's uh, uh, pitched at a higher place than it uh, should be. For example, when, you, when somebody gets frightened or nervous, the voice goes up in pitch. So if I were suddenly terrified, mm-hmm. uh, Pete, if, if, if suddenly mm-hmm. I got terrified doing this podcast, then my voice might go up like this and I might go, hey, Pete, this is scary. Right? My, uh-huh. my voice might uh-huh. go up in pitch. That would signal to you, obviously and intuitively, that I was frightened or anxious about something. And what happens is, in a subtler way, when we're, we don't feel in charge, when we don't feel like we're a leader in the room, our voices tighten up just a little bit and they rise just a tiny bit in pitch. Not enough for us to be consciously aware of it, but enough for everybody in the room to be unconsciously aware of it and decide, hey, that person isn't a leader. Wow. And so this, this research tends shows uh, it very powerful. It's important to get control of your voice and figure out where it is that, it, that you're pitching it and to become aware of... Are you conveying stress in your voice? Because our, we humans are incredibly adept at picking out tension in other people's voices and for sort of obvious survival reasons. And as I say, the simple way to understand this is imagine some, um, some loved one is suddenly walking across the street in the, into the path of an oncoming car and you panic and you shout out, watch out! Right, mm-hmm. Your voice would go up, wouldn't it? It would not right. go down. It would not. It would not say "watch out" <laughs> because there is danger. Instead, it would go up in pitch. So we intuitively we get this, but uh-huh. uh, as I say, the subtle kind of leadership when people are sitting around a conference table talking is a very different sort of thing, and people need to become aware of that because they can undercut themselves without being consciously uh, aware. So if I want to convey power and and seem confident, I want to ensure that my pitch doesn't rise a little bit because I like I'm scared a smidge. And so any best practices for pulling that off with consistency? Yes. Uh, I urge everybody to listen to Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech because hmm. he is the master of pitch. 
in voice. And what he does is he does allow his voice to go up because that not only can show fear, but it also shows passion. Uh, And passion is important in leadership. So he says, I have a dream. And his voice goes up and then comes down. And it comes down into the authoritative tone that we need to hear from him to know he's a leader. He doesn't say, I have a dream. Mm -hmm. If If he had given that speech saying, I have a dream, nobody would have remembered it and nobody would have followed him. But because he said, I have a dream, and his voice came down at the end, he signaled both passion with the higher pitch at the beginning of the phrase and then authority and strength with the lower pitch at the end of the phrase. And so you need to start thinking of your voice as almost a musical instrument to convey both passion, both caring and authority and leadership. Oh, this, this makes me feel better about the, the money I'm spending on voice lessons. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. That, that is... Everybody should spend money on voice lessons. And I say that I'm not a voice teacher per se, <laughs> so I'm not going to make any money from that recommendation. But everybody should. Oh, that, well, that's cool. That, that's fat. Well, anything else we should know about intonation in terms of maybe different situations call for different intonations? We talked about passion and we talked about confidence. We talked about fear. Anything else that comes to mind there? Well, sure. The, the advanced level then is to start getting control of your pacing and your pauses and your variety because uh, when you're under stress, you tend to speak in more in a monotone and you tend to speed up a little bit because you're nervous and, and you tend to say everything at the same rate, uh, the same pitch as they just talking, talking, talking mm-hmm. without much variety. And it sort of gets hard to understand and, and it gets a bit boring after a while because it's always at the same pitch, always at the same speed. And so part of developing powerful voice is learning to pause and let those moments sit for a minute, let a little anticipation build, and then to vary the pitch, to go up sometimes when you say, hey, this is really exciting. Wouldn't it be great if we could do this? And then bring your voice down again. So it's it's about putting music into your voice as well as uh, building pauses and and variety in as as well as uh, thinking about the pitch. Oh, I love that. And and I was, I heard, we did a session with a, a speech coach once uh, with my, my agency, Campus Speak for, for college folks. And he had an interesting point and he said that when you whisper, you become inspirational. And, <laughs> and I, and I thought, you know, that's kind of true, but at the same time, I feel like when you whisper, you also sometimes sound creepy. What's your take on whispering? A little of whispering goes a long way. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I would only use it very carefully in certain situations. Uh, I recently heard a commencement speech, and the entire speech was done this kind of agonized whisper. And it was <laughs> first fascinating and, and sort of electrifying. <laughs> and then after a couple of minutes, it just got agonizing. You were afraid that the uh, poor fellow was going to die. So, uh, <laughs> uh, you just started feeling sorry for him. And then pretty soon you had to tune out because we can't take a voice like that at a, a fever pitch mm-hmm. uh, without break. Uh, and so a little of that goes a long way. It's very, very intense. Very, <laughs> and you just don't want to listen to 10 minutes of this beat. It would drive you nuts. That is how I feel about the TV series Scandal. You know, ap- <laughs> apologies for people who love the show Scandal, but it feels to me like the whole script were written in capital letters and bold, and I can't take it after a while. <laughs> it's like my uh, the show it was great in the first season or two at 24. Oh, right. I remember watching that back in the day and Jack Bauer would come out every 10 seconds. It seemed like, and shout now we've got to do this now. This has to happen now. And it was really exciting until you realized that it was a verbal tick after a while. <laughs> there, there can only be so many things that can happen now. Oh, this is fun. So 
What are some of the most frequently occurring, I guess, weaknesses or Achilles heels, if you will, when it comes to the speakers that come across your pathway? One of the classic ones that everybody has to unlearn is the issue that's brought about because of the fight or flight syndrome, the adrenaline that goes through your system when you get ready to give a speech. And virtually everybody experiences that adrenaline, which means you're a bit nervous. And those Mm -hmm. symptoms that let you know that you're nervous are uncomfortable. Your heart rate speeds up. Maybe you, you feel warm. You feel flushed. Your palms get clammy. There's a whole series of symptoms. You know what they are, and, and they don't feel great. And so you, you try to get rid of them. And people do two things unconsciously to try to shed that tension. And both of them are wrong. <laughs> both of them are, are, are less than optimal in a speaking situation. So one of them is what we call happy feet. Mm. And that's where you just start pacing all over the stage. Now, a little bit of movement is good. But too much pacing and the audience starts to get annoyed with you after a while because you're not going anywhere. You're just going around and around in, 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 uh, in no direction, in circles in essence. And so that's, uh, that gets irritating and distracting for the audience. It's like a verbal tick. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the energy has to come out somewhere. And so the other place it comes out is in, in your hands. It's, uh, you don't think you're, you're not aware of it. You don't think you've done it, but you have, which is you clutch your hands nervously in front of your stomach. And the reason you do that is the fight or flight syndrome. You're bringing your hands up in front of your stomach in order to be able to fight. Mm. And so what you do is you signal unconsciously. It's a very low-level signal. But nonetheless, you're signaling hostility to the audience unconsciously. And the audience picks up, not at a conscious level, but again, but unconsciously, it picks up that slight bit of hostility that's in your stance. And you can imagine what that does for communication. How receptive are we going to be to your speech if we're feeling like you're acting in a slightly hostile manner? It it immediately makes us start to tune out. And it's one reason why so many speeches are so mediocre, because that body language is sloppy and the people are defensive and and they're in this fight-or-flight stance without being aware of it. As I say, they're they're not forming fists and they're not standing like a a prize fighter they're not that silly they're they're aware that that's not good so they may even be smiling but their hands unconsciously have that low level of sort of hostile hostile intent and that really interferes with their ability to connect with the audience so those are the two most common mistakes that I see or issues that I see over and over again well and speaking of, of of common issues I know that one massive pet peeve it sure comes through in your blog posts <laughs> is is when people have they're, they're showing some slides from powerpoint or keynote and the font size isn't quite up to par and they say i know you can't see this but i'd say what are some other just real quick simple things that folks need to to start or stop doing to to kick things up a notch uh sure uh, thinking along the same lines in slides is uh They'll put up a sea of numbers and they'll say, well, you can't, you can't see this, but buried in the middle of this slide is the important number. So one thing you can do is just blow that single number up, take all the other numbers out in the same way. Find what's the important point on the particular slide and cut out all the other words. And, and then, of course, you really want to up your game and remove as many words as possible and start using photographs and preferably real photographs, not stock photographs. <laughs> we don't want the the happy people around the conference table. How many times have you seen that? <laughs> there are a number of ways you can up your game on your slides. And one of them is simply uh, using fewer of them. Mm-hmm. Ask yourself, do I really need a slide here? Some people use it as a crutch and it's really more a speaker outline 
for the benefit of the speaker than it is for the audience. And the real, the, the real truth about slides is that they are a distraction to the audience and, and plenty of research on this. It turns out that humans don't multitask very well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we know this now. And so when you're asking an audience to look at you and to look at slides, that's asking them to multitask. And so there's what we call the switching loss. When you switch from one to the other, from you to the slides, from the slides to you, you lose some information. You don't hear the last word that you said, or you you don't quite get the whole intent of the slide. And so if you're going to use slides, then use them deliberately to say, now look at this slide because this picture says something that you need to see, right? I mean, you need to point to the slide and then give people a few seconds to take in the slide and then bring the attention back to you. And so that's just a way of using slides that doesn't actually undercut your effort to communicate. That's just a simple way to begin to raise your game. Interesting. And if we're thinking about the multitasking distraction element, would you recommend that from time to time you're just pushing that, you know, cut to black on the slide remote so that there's there's less of that? Yeah, absolutely. When when uh, I work with a speaker, the conversation we always have is we say, let's make each slide earn its place. It has to really add something. There has to be something powerful about the picture that is just much harder to describe in words. And so the slides all earn their places. And if it means that they'll in the course of the hour, there's going to be 10 minutes here or 10 minutes there where you don't really need a slide, then let's put a black one in so that from the audience's point of view, the, dis- the distraction goes away. You don't just have wallpaper up there, uh, which they're not sure whether they should look at or not. Mm-hmm. And, they can, and they can focus on you. Most people, when they're trying to decode what other people are telling them, when we're trying to get a message across to someone, we look to the human face first to understand what it is that you intend, what you mean. Are you saying what you're saying with a smile? Are you, are you, do you have a serious expression, serious expression on your face? We look to the, the human face first and foremost to decode what other people are telling us and to understand what other people are telling us. And so uh, letting your slides uh, go to black when you don't absolutely need a slide is a good way of, of putting the attention of the audience back where it should be, which is on you and your face. Okay. And, and so now maybe kind of flipping it a little bit, what are some things my, my buddy and speaking mentor, uh, Maui Asgadam from episode one, who first introduced me to your book. So, so thanks to him and to you. He wanted me to ask, what is something that professional or great speakers should do to continue improving and refining their game? Well, it almost goes without saying, maybe it's obvious, uh, maybe it isn't that you should study great speakers, not with an eye to copying them, but with an eye to taking from them what they do well and making it your own. Uh, because you need to develop your own voice, your own style, your own unique persona. But you can learn from the greats. For example, if you study, as I mentioned, uh, Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech, that's a fantastic speech. Uh, the second half of it was ad-libbed in front of 300,000 people. Mm. It's an extraordinary achievement. That whole section on I Have a Dream was an ad-libbed section because he felt he wasn't connecting with the audience sufficiently with the written part of the text. And yet he uses 
that vocal intonation that I talked about with his voice coming down at the end of each phrase to show that he is in control. He is an authority all the way through, even though he's making it up as he goes along. That's extraordinary, the power of that speech. So you can learn from that. Uh, Similarly, the most viewed TED Talk of all time, I think, is still Sir Ken Robinson's uh, Why Schools uh, Kill Creativity speech. And he uses that same arc in his voice. It's just much, much subtler because he's not talking to 300,000 people. But if you listen carefully to that voice, you'll hear his pitch goes down slightly at the end of each sentence too, which is how he conveys complete authority about what he's talking about. And when you do that, you, you signal to the audience that, hey, you're in good hands here. This is not, we've all had the experience of, of talking to somebody who says everything as if it was a question. Right. It's really great, great to be here today. And my name is Nick and it's a pleasure to talk with you, Pete. And <laughs> I, I hope we have a good discussion today and a little bit of that. And you just, you're ready to wring the neck of the person who's talking to you, right? But we hear people who talk like that all the time and it comes from a nervousness, perhaps, and also partly a desire to get approval or to get agreement from everybody else in the room. And it's very irritating. So don't do it. Okay. And my final question before we shift gears into the fast favorites section is, do any kind of creative uh, tactics or technologies leap to mind in terms of looking to, to boost the engagement, the follow through, the accountability of, of what's happening in a speech? So beyond just you know us talking, but getting folks doing some things or inputting some things in, in technology, what are some of the the coolest ways you've seen to the boost the engagement, follow through and accountability? Yeah, I, I love that question because there are all kinds of new ways that are now developing that we're seeing. I mean, the for a long time, uh, speakers have had the option of being interactive with the audience, get the audience to do something. If I tell you something, you'll remember it in one way. But if I get you doing something, you'll remember it much more powerfully. So, so audience interactivity is always a way to increase engagement and retention. And, and, and it's very important. Even in, in a huge keynote speech situations, you can still do some interactive things. But what's happening now, thanks to technology, is we have the option of, uh, say, you're going to give a keynote speech. You could send out a little... 20-second or 30-second video beforehand to all the people who are going to be there who are signed up for the event or who are at the company where you're going to speak. And you get their emails from uh, from HR there at the company, send out the, the little video. And that's a way of, of piquing people's curiosity and saying, hey, I'm really looking forward to chatting with you. And we're seeing what we call uh, gamification, where people do little uh, little mini contests and they ask a couple of questions about what's going to happen in the speech and they may maybe even offer a prize to the person who can answer the the question correctly. And it's kind of a fun and playful way of piquing people's curiosity and interest before the speech. And then you can do the same in in follow-up. You can ask them questions, you can get feedback, you can continue the discussion in all sorts of ways now, thanks to technology, again, with video, but also with uh, with simple text messaging and email and that sort of thing. So there are all kinds of ways now to increase the engagement of your audience, both before and after the speech, as well as during. Oh, beautiful. Thank you. Well, so now you tell me, is there anything else you want to make sure that you get out there before we kind of shift gears and go into the rapid fire fast faves segment? Well, we talked a lot about body language. So I would just say the the whole point of body language is to be in service to the content. And one of the big misunderstandings out there, and I feel it's important because I'm somebody who talks about 
body language a lot. So I feel it's important to say this. But one of the big misunderstandings out there is it's not just all about the body language. <laughs> the whole point is to get your body language effectively supporting your content so that you can make a point. Humans get together to communicate. They don't get together to share body language per mm -hmm. se. They get together to talk to each other about stuff that matters to them. And so the reason that you want to work on the body language, always remember, is to put it in service, in effective service to your content, to what you're passionate about, to the story you're trying to tell. Lovely. Thank you. All right. Would you kick us off by sharing what's a favorite quote of yours, something that inspires you again and again? The only reason to give a speech is to change the world. All right. And how about a favorite study or piece of research? Well, I love the famous or infamous Almorabian research, which found, and it gets misquoted all the time, but what it found was that when body language and content are at odds with one another, we always believe the body language. Hmm. And so the body language always trumps the content. And what that means is to give a very simple example, if, if you go home today and, and your spouse is angry at you for some reason, you ask her how she is, uh, and she says, fine, mm -hmm. but she's got her arms crossed, she's got a scowl on her face, and you hear a tone in the word fine, then you know she's not fine. But right. we humans do that all the time, and because we grown-ups especially, because we're used to pretending that we're fine when we're not and, and telling little white lies and things like that. And so we get adept at reading people's body language to figure out what they're really saying. And the Moravian study really kicked off. It's the classic one that kicked off the study of unpacking body language and figuring out what it means. Oh, fun. And how about a favorite book? Uh, well, I love, uh, besides my own, <laughs> I love uh, Amy Cuddy's recent book called oh, Presence. Oh, yes. Um, so I recommend that highly to all your listeners. It's uh, it's quite funny because uh, both my book, Power Cues, which you were kind enough to mention, published in 2014, and her book, Presence, published this year, or late 2015, I guess, begin with a discussion of our traumatic brain injuries. We both <laughs> suffered traumatic brain injuries and then became interested in body language. And when I read her book, that was so freaky to discover that mm -hmm. uh, we both had that similar experience that I, I've just been fascinated by that book ever since. And there's a, there's a lot of good uh, research and, and recommendations in there for how to improve your presence. Oh, that's fun. And we are, we're hoping to get her on the show shortly. How about a favorite tool? Is there a, a hardware, software, gadget, or, or something that you find handy? Yeah, sure. The, uh, one thing your listeners may not be aware of is that there are a number of good apps out there now that can turn your computer or your, uh, or even your iPad or your a device like an iPad, I should say, uh, so as not to be giving product recommendations, but uh, there are apps that turn it into teleprompters. And so you can, you can put notes for a speech or, or the speech itself up on the, on your computer and your teleprompter. So if you're, uh, or your iPad. So if you're afraid of, of losing your place or forgetting what you're going to say, you have the security of the notes or the speech there for you. So it's uh, technology just makes it very easy nowadays to give yourself the support you need so you don't have to worry about forgetting what you're going to say. Oh, that's handy. And are there uh, particular apps that you have experience with that you've been pleased with in that category? Uh, sure. Once the, the one I use is called Teleprompter Plus. Okay. So uh, there, Plus? There's several. Uh. Plus, yeah. <laughs> 
I don't know. I don't know what the plus means. But I guess it's just better than <laughs> better than the others or something. <laughs> and how about a favorite habit? Is there a personal practice of yours that's really boosted your effectiveness? Yes, and I'm so glad you asked that because this is a pet cause of mine. What we call belly breathing or diaphragmatic breathing. Most people, when they breathe, just lift their shoulders up and down and they breathe very shallow breaths. And it's especially a curse of modern life because we spend so much of our time sitting, sitting at desks, sitting on airplanes, sitting in cars. And it's hard to breathe big, deep belly breaths uh, sitting down. And so I tell everybody, stand up, expand your stomach as you breathe in so that you can take lots of air in. It's counterintuitive. It's opposite to the way most people normally breathe. But if you've been a singer or if you've done yoga, you've practiced this so you know how to do it and it's great for your health it's great for the resonance and and strength of your voice and if you want to be a leader it's essential for developing a leadership voice thank you and how about a uh, best way to find you if folks want to learn more about you should you direct them to your website or twitter or where would you have them go the website is is probably the easiest way to get in touch with me there's links and contact forms on there so it's public words P-U-B-L-I-C-W-O-R-D-S.com. Lovely. And how about a favorite a challenge or a parting call to action for those seeking to become more awesome at their jobs? Ask yourself your personal why. Figure out why you're doing what you're doing, why you're there, why it matters. And be ready to tell people that, not in a pushy or aggressive way, but just, just ready to work that into the conversation. It's surprising how powerful that is for people to hear. Oh. Perfect. Well, Nick, this has been such a treat. Uh, thank you so much. And I wish you tons of luck with public words and, and all the good stuff you're doing over there. Thank you, Pete. It was a real pleasure to chat with you. Thanks again to Nick Morgan for sharing those insights. And thanks again to our sponsors. Check them out. Okay. Are you inspired? Are you transformed? I hope so. So I mean, absolutely, especially starting something with why and what they don't know to hook attention can be absolutely game-changing in terms of how you're doing your communications and those vocal intonation pitch things. Mm, so good. So again, if you want to check out the show notes, the transcript things mentioned, that's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep41. And I hope you'll stick with us for the next episode, number 42. And we're chatting with Ben Elijah, who has got some very thoughtful perspectives about what makes for productivity. Until then, bye-bye. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. 